that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and as a podcast at thecityfm.org, I'm Andy Longhurst. Does a growing service sector in North American cities necessitate urban inequality? What are the implications of deteriorating job quality in our cities? On the program, I talk with Mark Dussard. He is author of a recently published book, Degraded Work, The Struggle at the Bottom of the Labor Market. You're tuned into The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca. And we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca. And uh, this is available as a podcast from thecityfm.org. And I'm Andy Longhurst. On the, on, pro, on the program today, Mark Dussard's research examines inequalities in the workplace and the contribution of public policy decisions to economic opportunity. His labor market scholarship focuses on place-bound industries in which the decline in working conditions has eclipsed the downward slide in wages. And his 2013 book, Degraded Work, published by the University of Minnesota Press, details the deteriorating conditions of employment in local serving industries protected against international competition. And the book builds on a long-term engagement with regional economic development, the challenges and the challenge and challenges uh, the assumption that low pay and poor working conditions are intrinsic characteristics of service sector jobs. Mark Dussard is Assistant Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I spoke with Mark Dussard on October 1st, 2013, in Champaign, Illinois. I guess, first of all, um, what central questions does your book set out to explore, and, and what do you argue in it? Okay. You know... I wanted to know why the worst jobs in the U.S. were in industries that are insulated from international competition. So for people like me who thought about job quality and just where we would get employment that could make for a decent standard of living, we've always looked at kind of the specter of foreign competition, right? That moving moving jobs abroad or having to compete on wage rates with used to be Mexico, now it's China, was the main problem. And so there, there, those were always flawed explanations, but they were explanations of why some jobs were becoming a lot worse. Uh, but you know, what was striking to me during the 2000s uh, economic boom in the U.S. was that the worst jobs were in industries that didn't have to compete internationally, right? So they were in construction, retail, janitorial services. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the uh, the polite way some people would put it is that we uh, thought about it ass backwards, right? That we, we uh, focus on job quality in industries where we focus, we take for granted poor job quality in industries that don't have to compete globally. And we obsess over job quality in industries that can be uh, bid down from competition abroad. And it just seemed backwards. So that was kind of the, the first question I wanted to look at, is if we could explain why why the worst jobs were the jobs that didn't have to, uh, that didn't compete like that. And the reason why I did that is because if you could explain why job quality in those jobs had changed, you know, in your retail jobs and so on, that it starts to look like a matter of political choice rather than market necessity. And that opens the door for public policy to uh, make things better off for a lot of people. And so what I argue, what I argue is that, yes, in fact, uh, there are policy choices that underlie the... uh, that underlie just kind of the decimation of job quality in so many of these industries. Uh, we in the U.S. we tend not to fund enforcement of our basic labor laws, 
So if you pay less than the minimum wage, for example, the odds are unlikely that you're going to get caught and the penalty doesn't fit the crime. If you fire workers for supporting a labor union, uh, that's illegal, but the penalty is basically a slap on the wrist after a civil suit. And uh, just to kind of add salt to the wound, if you would, you owe all you owe a worker for illegally firing her is back wages that you would have paid her anyway, minus any wages she earned on another job in the meantime. So it it's not exactly a healthy deterrent. So I looked I looked at that and other things like that and determined that yes, this is very much, um, very much a policy choice. Now, at, at, at what level? I mean, just for listeners yeah. in the Canadian context, we have uh, provincial labor standards or employment standards that regulate um, elements of the the employment uh, contract or employment uh, arrangement. Uh, what are the the scales or the levels at which um, theoretically uh, these things are regulated at? I. Uh, you know, that, that's a great question. It's many scales. It's primarily federal. So we have some state-level variations in labor laws, particularly around who's a, the official employer in a subcontracting or temp worker in, in a situation. But most of, most, of this, most of this originates at the federal level. The the quirk, right, is that we have a lack of political will at the national level to do anything about this. Do do laws at the federal level make it that much more impossible or unlikely that they will be actually enforced? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think one of the, the classic examples is the wage and hour division of the U.S. Department of Labor, which enforces the minimum wage. Uh, since the late 1970s, the number of workplaces in the U.S. has more than doubled, and funding for that agency after you adjust for inflation is down. So if you look at it that way, you know we basically have about 40% as many inspectors to enforce the laws we did before. Uh, the Obama administration has reversed some of that, but not enough, and they seem to have had a bit of a fight on doing it. So uh, consistent and perpetual underfunding of this kind of thing is just par for the course. Okay. And what's distinctive about the U.S. then is we have, uh, we have these federally created problems, right? Labor, labor laws that can't be updated due to political opposition that aren't enforced, uh, large amounts of undocumented immigration that doesn't officially exist. So there you have millions of workers around the U.S. in this legal gray area. These are all issues that emerge federally, and yet nobody is doing anything about it. So it comes down to your community organization or neighborhood coalition down the street to do something about it. And that's a pretty tall order, right? I mean, uh, you think globally, act locally, and all that, but it's pretty tough to see how, at the neighborhood or the city level, you can really countermand any of this. And a lot of what the book does is take a closer look at industries to find some pressure points where these, frankly, uh, outmatched neighborhood organizations can find can can extract a little more a uh, little more good outcomes for their efforts. Before we dive into 
some of your findings in, in your book and your research. Can you give us a sense of uh, Chicago's social and economic geography and and what what we need to know um, as we enter this discussion about uh, what you found? Just just set it up for us um, and and you know draw out what we should know um, to understand the present situation in uh, in Chicago. Okay. Um, you know, Chicago, I think, confounds a lot of the ways we've all been taught to think about urban inequality. So it's definitely, you know, the number of manufacturing jobs uh, lost since the mid-1970s is staggering, and I, I forget the exact count at this point, but it's, it's several hundred thousands. These were social wage, unionized jobs with pensions, you know, every, everything we all miss essentially from the good old days. But the city was never purely um, manufacturing reliant, reliant right? In, in distinction to the rest of the Midwest, it had a lot of corporate headquarters. Uh, it had a large number. Uh, it, it had Motorola and technology firms. And in, always had, in fact, kind of a lot of high-tech innovation embedded within large corporations. So you didn't have Google or Netscape in Chicago, but you would have uh, research arms of American Airlines or someone else putting a lot of techies to work to kind of refine products as they were embedded within large firms. So it's not, it's not this naked story. And Chicago has a significant finance industry, but it's nowhere near as dominant here as in New York. So it's not this typical story of you have uh, bankers and the people who serve them at top and the scrubs below. It was always kind of a more diversified economy, if you would. Um, and a lot of what I argue in the book is that thinking about, thinking about uh, this is a polarized economy buries a lot of the information you'd really need. Uh, you know, Chicago had kind of a classic, you had your African-American populations on the South and the West side, and they suffered disproportionately, uh, you know, from the 1960s through the present, really. But you've also had, you also have a lot of areas of population growth within the city and interestingly areas that are, that are poor, but not all that poor, uh, around the the immigrant population which is about 30 percent of the city so it's you know it's not like what you'd find in the gta but it's pretty substantial and this is a, where a lot of the action in the book takes place and if you will it's these not downwardly mo it's poor but not that poor in neighborhoods with people who work but work in low-wage jobs and it's kind of about the consumption economies of those neighborhoods so you have you know, Chicago has three has uh, two separate Polish Broadways. We call them. Um, it has several Mexican American enclaves and so on. And these are places with large households where, if you basically pool enough mid to mid low wage earnings, you have households with a lot of spending power. And these are the households. Uh, that are driving the expansion of a lot of consumption industries. And those are some of the industries I look at. Um, I don't know if that gets you what you need, but that's... Absolutely. I'd be, I'd be happy to clarify any, anything else about that. There's a lot to say. Yeah, and, and particularly with Chicago, um, what, is, what are some of these social dislocations that have occurred? Obviously, your book is part of 
it's a contribution to this discussion, but when we talk about things like social dislocations through post-industrial uh, economic restructuring, um, how, how is Chicago perhaps representative of that? Uh, you know, every place in the Midwest has deindustrialization horror stories. Uh, on the, the southeast side of Chicago on Lake Michigan, it had, uh, it's not a place you'd ever want to swim because the, the water there is filthy. It went for steel mills. In the early 1980s, you had a lot of people, I, I, I think the quintessential and probably, frankly, apocryphal stories about the mill, the workers went home Tuesday, had their dinner, went to the bar, came back Wednesday morning, and that was it. The gate was locked, the mill had been sold, it was going to be sold for scrap, and that was that. So you had huge, just huge portions of the city with ma you know, just massive, concentrated, rapid loss of mid-wage jobs. And as is generally true elsewhere, you know, there was, there was nothing that, there was nothing for a modestly skilled individual that was going to replace, was going to replace a job that's paying 30 or 40 bucks an hour. I mean, the, the, the economy's changed so much that, uh, I'm going to teach this to my students tomorrow. And I, the, the number one task is to actually help them understand that, uh, there used to be a world in which that was a meaningful expectation. Nobody expects that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chicago, Chicago had lots of this. It had lots of, uh, you know, the classic term is hollowing out. It had lots of neighborhoods that just lost massive amounts of jobs, massive population, massive household incomes. What's interesting is that the, the story is usually told historically. Uh, it was, people talk about, say, Reagan-era deindustrialization. But a lot of these trends continued in the 2000s under different guises. So uh, the, set, the the areas around the Chicago Loop and the north side lakefront neighborhoods gained population and gained income, and you had various neighborhoods on the south and west sides during the 2000s that saw median household incomes just fall off a cliff. Okay. So it's always been associated with just these incredibly rapid changes in fortunes. And when the job when the jobs disappear, the home the homes go, the homes get foreclosed, and so on. Pardon me, go on. No, no, no. And I guess part of that contradiction and these tensions you you pull out early on uh, in your book, and you talk about how the city of Chicago was trying to lure um, Boeing to relocate to the city and and focus its political efforts and and political capital on this. And um, I just want to ask you. Why, why tell this story in the beginning of your book about this um, political maneuvering and, and these efforts? And, and what are some of the contradictions um, that are important in this? Well, the Boeing story, I think, is just about this fundamental misplacement of priorities and how we think about jobs. So, you know, Boeing was headquartered just down the road from you for a long time. And in 2001, they announced... They announced that the headquarters was for sale, essentially, and they named a short list, said Denver, Chicago, Dallas, we're going to put you on a short list, bid for our services, who can give us the sweetest tax reductions, and so on. Illinois won, or Chicago won, but what stands out about it is it was not a lot of jobs. Uh, it was a few hundred headquarters jobs. Most of those jobs were going to be 
filled from emigrants from Washington State, right? So it's not like Boeing is just going to move here and hire a new CEO from Chicago. They're just going to move the existing people here. So where the benefit is for people currently living in Chicago was never clear. And, you know, at the same time that, that the city and state were throwing millions of dollars a year at a few hundred jobs that could always be moved again, you had a once-in-a-lifetime residential construction boom. Uh, where the you know in, in the U.S. the the volume of housing construction basically doubled in the mid 2000s. Labor demand went through the roof. Millions millions of people were bidding on jobs for these very expensive homes, and yet construction wages fell. So this seems like a completely backwards priority, right? That you're you're obsessing over mobile jobs that go to people who don't live in your city to begin with and turning a blind eye to these absolutely horrific wages and working conditions in construction and other industries that are booming and just not paying any of the benefits we associate with good economic times. And that's a, I think it's a recurrent story you see in any big city and in how we're taught to think about, uh, jobs and economic development. You're supposed to focus on the people who sell stuff to someone somewhere else and not on your local industries, not on construction or retail or janitorial services. I think there's a lot of grounds to say that focus is backwards or misplaced. Mm. Your book looks specifically at at two place-bound industries, and I want to ask you to unpack what that word means. Um, and and how are the ways in in that you look at these industries and i guess what significance um is there in looking at industries that are um place bound um and again to follow up on that how are these examples of what you call degraded work okay um First of all, I realize i don't think i've defined the term yet, which is a mistake uh so degraded work just so everybody can be clear on what we're talking about, is the combination of low wages, poor working conditions, and frequent employer violations of labor laws. Uh, the best place to see the difference between degraded work and low-wage work would be with a day laborer. Day laborers, when they're hired, uh, make 10 or $12 an hour. And if you multiply that by 40 hours a week, it looks, uh, you come in at actually a pretty high wage and a job that most people would say that's a good job. But of course, they don't get 40 hours a week. They get maybe 10 or 20 and they have to stand on the street corner for dozens of hours just to get those. They're frequently not paid at all when there's a dispute among contractors. Uh, they get no proper safety equipment, no rest breaks. They're told to work straight through lunch. Any day laborer you meet who's been doing it more than a year, you, you can just see they're physically not right. There's something wrong with their back. There's something wrong with their hands or their wrists. A lot of people have what looks like preliminary arthritis. It just goes on and on. So if you look at this through the lens of a conventional job, it's not bad. Uh, but if you expand your view to look, look at degraded work, you see all kinds of other things going on in these jobs. And these are things that help us to understand the employers and the industries themselves. And that's part of what I do in the book. Um, so place-bound industries, that's 
that's a boring and technical term, but I guess in my defense, I'd like to point out that the classical term for it is residentiary industries. So uh, I'd like to think that mine rolls off the tongue a little bit easier than that. <laughs> um, Place-bound industries are industries that sell to local markets, right? So manufacturers are selling to people who live somewhere else, presumably. Uh, Place-bound industries are restaurants. A restaurant cannot move to the middle of a cornfield to cut labor costs or to get cheaper property because nobody's going to go there. A hotel can't move to downstate Illinois for cheaper taxes unless there's people who want to stay in the hotel and so on. So place-bound industries are just kind of the, the, the mass of service industries uh, meeting local demand that you're classically told not to pay attention to. If, if you go to any economic development part department in a large American city, they're still going to be re remain focused on manufacturers and probably now high-tech industries. And the idea that you can change job quality or you could change the structure of these industries is revolutionary. Uh, one of the, by the way, one of the, one of the classic uh, cautionary tales on this is uh, Port Alberni on uh, Vancouver Island, which I just taught something about, right? I mean, that that's classically paper mills are the kind of industry you want to focus on because they bring money in mm -hmm. from selling products to elsewhere. The problem is the paper mill can always get moved. Not so for the place-bound industry. So that's kind of the genesis of of my interest in them. So I, I chose two significantly different place-bound industries. Uh, one of them was food retail. So in the U.S., uh, supermarkets were one of the, the rare unionized service sector industries for a long time. So uh, a supermarket in the U.S., if you're in one of the major chains, still looks a little bit like working on an auto assembly line. Uh, you, you're, you know... Uh, last hired, first fired system, seniority matters, wage scales that ascend over time with a job, uh, pension, grievous, grievance procedures. It looks like a classic union job. That's come apart with uh, the entry of Walmart and so on into the industry. Uh, but what I look at in the book is I look at this enormous boom in mid-sized supermarkets serving uh, low-income immigrant populations. Yeah, these represent probably as much as 10% of the, of the industry within the Chicago city limits. And they're just, these are fascinating industries because we hear a lot, I don't know if you get it on your side of the border, we hear a lot about food deserts, right? The areas where low-income people don't have access to groceries. In Chicago, for most low-income people, it, this is blown out of the water, right? These, in this, these supermarkets are expanding precisely into low-income neighborhoods where we're told they shouldn't be. And they're doing it, they're doing it by offering absolutely cut-rate prices. And so the question, if you're kind of a, a labor activist or you're worried about the job quality in the supermarkets is, well, are, are, the, are the labor, is sweating workers essential to delivering the food. Is there a way to solve this food desert problem, if you would, while paying higher, while paying higher wages and providing better jobs? And the answer I found was basically yes, that 
employers in this industry, they sweat workers because they can, but not because they have to. And if you look firm by firm, labor costs are pretty uniform and they're cheap. They're about 50 cents on the dollar or less than they'd be in a chain supermarket. The product costs on labor-intensive goods, which is meat and produce in the supermarket. You know, produce has to be stacked, meat has to be cut. They vary all over the place, and they do not move in lockstep. Uh, so one of the interesting findings there essentially is, if you would, you're not going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg, that these firms have the capacity to absorb higher labor costs uh, within their existing price structure, which I think is a very significant finding. Uh, and it's getting more relevant since Chicago is now subsidizing a lot of Walmarts to uh, come in on the very premise that there's no way to deliver groceries to low-income neighborhoods without taking it out of workers. Uh, the conclusions were, the conclusions in my book are exactly the opposite. Hmm. Um, the second industry is construction. So that that case is aged a little less well, right? I was doing this research in 2005 and 2006 when, which were the absolute worst year, worst years to buy a home in the U S you're still market value or price still 70 cents on the dollar compared to then, but it should have been a great time for being a worker and it wasn't. So what I did is I fought, I worked with day laborers. I ran, I did a lot of favors for them that, small claims court, I mediated disputes with contractors, and I got to know a lot of day laborers and contractors. And through that, I was kind of able to map the subcontracting chain in construction, which is incredibly, incredibly complicated. No residential construction firm can uh, keep on the books everybody you'd need to, say, uh, install a new kitchen. You need people to do demolition. You need people to do wiring. You know, no individual contractor is going to keep a dozen skilled specialists full-time on the payroll. So even before temping and subcontracting became kind of all the rage in other industries, they were a norm in construction just as a way of solving this problem of flexibility. Um, and that's the system into which day laborers have been plugged. And what I found as I followed a lot of these disputes as they rippled up and down the subcontracting chain is that day laborers performed this kind of valuable, they did two things for contractors. Uh, first, they performed this valuable uh, risk mitigation role, if you would. So often in construction, you don't get paid. You bid too high. Uh, you know, the, the classic scenario would be Someone wants you to install a new, uh, new vanities in the bathroom and you give a bid, say, $5,000 because you look at the house, it looks like it should cost this. And you rip out the wall to hook up the vanity and everything's rusted. So you have to replace that. And things get slow and the materials are higher and your margins are obliterated. And you cut some corners elsewhere and the homeowner doesn't like the work. And if the homeowner doesn't like the work, they don't pay you. So it used to be in construction, you would have a general contractor who would absorb all that risk. The general contractor gets paid or doesn't get paid. Uh, and now what you see with day laborers is if the general contractor doesn't get paid, he just takes it out of the subcontractors. 
So a lot of times what happens is pay dispute risk rolls downhill. The general contractor holds out from the subcontractors. The subcontractors hold out from the day laborers. And this is why you have uh, rampant wage theft in residential construction. A lot of people, a lot of day laborers just pour in their efforts on a job on a job for which the pay never materializes. And there's no labor, there's no judicial or regulatory or labor market system that really lets them recover what's essentially stolen wages. The other interesting thing in residential construction is that the presence of so many day laborers who just work from you know, dust to dawn at a blistering pace has allowed these residential contractors to really experiment with how they do the work. So the classic example I got from somebody is he said, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, I would hire an electrician to wire the house. And I would hire a, a framer to build, to build the frame for the addition. And he narrates this amazing story where he basically has turned, has uh, stripped out all the labor from those processes and assigned it to day labor. So I was talking to this guy in a, I think a projected $2 million home near Wrigley Field. He said, yeah, so the, you know, the electrician deserves some profit, but I'm not going to pay him to pull cables. That's idiotic. So he basically has turned all these skilled tradespeople into uh, design specialists. So the electrician will come and post his electrician's license on the front of the house. He'll design the electrical work and, and put in the boxes. The day laborers will pull the fuses, pull the cable, and uh, connect everything. And then the contractor kind of comes back at the very end, checks if the work's okay, collects a few hundred dollars and leaves. So this is, this is kind of one of the other really fascinating ways in which just the presence of so many desperate workers uh, occasion this crazy experimentation in residential construction methods, which really changed the assignment of risks and rewards during the boom. So if you want to explain why construction wages fell during a once-in-a-lifetime boom, this is it. You had the separation of the skilled and the unskilled work in the construction process. And if you're a laborer, there's just no longer any way to collect anything other than cut rate pay for the few hours you can work, hmm. which is, which is the, the, the long history of residential construction in Chicago. You write uh, at one point in your book, uh, deepening our understanding of labor degradation means reconceptualizing low-wage industries as active producers of inequality rather than as manifestations of a problem that originates in multinational firms. What do you mean by that? So in urban studies, we have, we have a very compelling narrative about so-called global cities. Global cities are classically uh, New York, London, Tokyo. They're the centers of finance for a country. And the story that comes is this narrative story that helps us explain inequality. And it's inaccurate, but it's highly convincing. You know, the story is that you have all these skilled investment bankers who have a lot of money and not a lot of time. Uh, because you know, their labor is so valuable to their industries. So they spend on all kinds of services. 
uh, you know, they spend on caterers, on dry cleaning. A lot of people I knew from college went into law in New York. You know, they'd have limousine drivers to take them home at midnight, uh, people to run out and buy meals for them, it just anything to keep their nose to the grindstone at the office. And so it's this narrative story that supposedly illustrates that we have more inequality because we have really rich people at the top of the income distribution who buy services. And those, low wa- those services are low wage. They're always going to be crummy jobs. And what my book does is just break apart that category and say there's nothing that says job quality is essential to these industries. That if you look at it, job quality has changed, right? Food retail used to be unionized, used to be pay a lot better than a lot of manufacturing jobs do now. Residential construction, the assignment of risks and rewards has changed over time. So basically what I argue is that the is that our popular story about inequality confuses the growth of service industries, which has happened, with their degradation. And and so, in short, sir, the problem isn't that service jobs are growing, it's that they're growing worse, and that we just completely misconceptualize the problem. In part of this research, you mentioned um, working with community and neighborhood labor organizations and, and organizers, um, I believe, as, as an organizer yourself at one point, is that right? Uh, or an a- yeah, advocate? Yeah, there, there I... I, I was the world's worst union organizer for a few months. Um, as part of doing this research, I worked very closely with a lot of these coalitions. So I did, I did favors and research for them and mm-hmm. presentations for them. But I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think you can picture me on the front lines with a bullhorn. That would okay. be inaccurate. <laughs> but with that um, observation, I, I mean, coming out of this, is your conclusion that a lot of these challenges are simply too great for neighborhood-based coalitions and, and organizations to really combat? So, if they can find themselves to the neighborhood or city scale, the answer is going to be yes. Uh, probably the, the, the most common response to this problem in the U.S. would be worker centers. Um, I'm I'm not sure if this institution has made its way to Canada, but a a worker center is essentially a combined service delivery advocacy organization that would target an industry, a neighborhood, or a population and provide them with labor market services and then organize the workers themselves to deal with a lot of the workplace problems. Uh, there's all kinds of examples of this. Uh, in New Bedford, Massachusetts, the main one is Organización Maya Quiche, which uh, goes to the, the Mayan immigrant population and to people who speak Mi'kmaq. Uh, in Chicago, I worked with the Albany Park Worker Center, which tar- targeted the Albany Park neighborhood. Uh, you have garment industry worker centers elsewhere. So they, they, can target, they can target a place, a population, or an industry. But what matters is they target something. And they begin, they begin to align workers to do some of the policing that, uh, that the feds don't do anymore. 
right? So if you're a member of a worker center uh, and you have somebody who didn't get paid, as common ha- commonly happens, the members will go and protest to, to, to collect the back wages, right? Or you might or you might start lobbying uh, certain certain city council members. Uh, you might engage in some education. So for day laborers, there's a lot of best practices circulating on get it get the get the contractor's license plate when you get picked up, get a landline phone number. So they combine education, advocacy, and all these things. But look, as the last line of defense, you're only ever going to be able to do so much, right? We There's millions of construction jobs in the U.S. They're all policed by this horribly inadequate regulatory system. So you're not going to solve this problem one employer at a time. Uh, and what's interesting about these organizations is that they're increasingly, pardon the technical term, but we say they're scaling up. So you could take the classic example of the Restaurant Opportunities Center, Center in New York. Uh, that, that started after uh, 9-11 with uh, workers trying to solve systematic problems of sub-minimum wages and horrific working conditions in restaurants in New York. Well, that's now Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. It spans, I think, a dozen cities. Um, it lobbies nationally, and it lobbies Congress. They pursue minimum wage increases in state houses. They're behind a lot of so-called wage theft laws to kind of uh, strengthen workplace inspections and policing for paying people the minimum wage. In, in the U.S., if you're a service worker, it really is hard to get paid the minimum wage. Uh, so this, this is kind of the hopeful note you find, is that these organizations are finding ways where they can be better organized than employers, if that makes sense. So you would have, for example, uh, in Chicago, you had, uh, you had a lot of workers who worked at temp agencies that engaged in all kinds of abusive practices. And what these workers found is you could go to the state capitol and lobby for a state law regulating temp agencies because there was no powerful uh, temp, temp agency organization to push back against you. And so by moving the field of action, if you will, from the neighborhood and the workplace to city hall, the state, and to Congress, you find ways in which workers can kind of get out in front of this and in which they, these organizations are starting to be in some ways better organized and more strategic than the employers who are making their jobs miserable. And this, this I think, you know, the book in a lot of ways is full of a lot of bad news. Um, and there's probably no better way to put it. But this is, a, this is really something that's happening before our eyes, where these organizations are getting very strategic and starting to win a lot of legislative victories by shifting, by, uh, shifting the terrain of the contest, if you will. Hmm. Part of the part of the challenge in in British Columbia as well as other provinces is, aside from an all-out political change at certain levels, um, we are seeing the degradation of of work and um, the the growing precarious nature of of employment. And I I guess a question to you is, if these same patterns, obviously it is still um, 
qualitatively a different um, labor market than places like Chicago. But if we are starting to see many of these patterns, um, what are some of those strategies and 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 recommendations you might offer um, in places where just the the growing degradation of work is very visible and apparent? So this is a, this is a great question because I imagine that I imagine my work to be so focused on our kind of distinctive American problems. Um, and the first lesson is to focus and target, and particularly to focus in on an industry. When manufacturing jobs in the U.S. started to disappear, we very very productively had people look look at these industries from from head to toe to determine to determine what might make to determine where there was real leverage to do something about where the jobs were and how good they were and where you had to just get out and say there's nothing we can do about that. And historically historically you're only allowed to do that for manufacturing industries. But I think the very first thing I could say is you subject the industry to just the most rigorous and detailed analysis you can because no industry is ever stable. There's always some employers gaining market share at the expense of others, pushing into new markets, deploying technologies differently. There's employers with uh, different kinds of relationships with consumers. And the more you map that, the more you find ways to intervene to keep uh, to change kind of the, to, to maintain or change the social bargain around these jobs. In service industries in particular, I think there's an important distinction about uh, customer-facing jobs. So it's generally taken for granted that, uh, or, or I think there's good reason to think, that when the workers kind of bearing the brunt of labor degradation interact with customers every day, there's a lot more leverage there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. So if, if you're working in a, in a distribution center, in a warehouse somewhere, your strategies have to be different. If you're a fast food worker or a retail salesperson, there's other things you can do, and there's opportunities to kind of uh, publicize. Uh, publicize. There, there's opportunities to shine a light on bad and good employers alike. So in New York, you had uh, the classic case of a an industry code of conduct for basically corner groceries. There were too many of them to regulate. The code of conduct had was voluntary but legally binding, and it set standards for hours, wages, paid rest breaks, paid sick leave, vacation days, very basic stuff that you couldn't get in the industry. And once an employer signed once an employer signed, it was legally binding. And this was a really creative law that did some interesting things. Uh, among other things, you, if you signed, you got to advertise compliance. And this is an industry where the low wages had been very publicized and were causing a lot of employers grief. So you get on the right side of this, and all of a sudden, there's kind of a market premium that goes to you. You get to put a, a sticker in the window. We are compliant with the Greengrocer Code of Conduct. And there were all kinds of other creative measures that came about this way. Um, that law also targets any fines. 
And the law is based on the observation that there's just never going to be enough regulators to police uh, hundreds or thousands of these tiny corner groceries, right? I mean, even if you want to fund it well, it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. So the law sets aside um, penalties for labor law violations in that industry to fund dedicated inspectors for the industry. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, and this is one of the other great lessons, right? Uh, a lot of service industries, it, are your problems in BC service industries? It tends to be, well, particularly in Vancouver, that tends to be um, predominantly what drives this economy. Yeah. You know, the the regulatory system for service industries um, it was basically probably built in the post-war era around uh, mass production and manufacturing. And there's going to be dozens of ways, large and small, in which those institutions are just not a good fit for uh, diffuse employers, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you're a huge manufacturing production plant, you're easy to unionize, you're easy to have a workplace, and it's easy to have inspections, you're highly visible. If you're a Chinese takeaway or something, uh, you know, nobody's ever even going to have a complete census of where all of those are. So there's a lot to be said, I think, for matching, for fitting the regulatory apparatus to the industries themselves. And this just gets back to the theme. And the more you know about an industry, the more you can see it, but you can never take it for granted. And you can always find, you can always find winners, losers, and opportunities to intervene if you look closely at how the industry is changing. Because no industry, no industry is ever stable. It's fascinating to look at them because there's always there's always somebody gaming the system and gaining an advantage and if you're a worker organizer that's what you need to know because that gives you your in would you say though that uh orthodox and and uh neoclassical economic approaches to urban and regional social and economic inequality are ill-equipped to deal with these um, rapidly changing and, and dynamic uh, urban and regional economies? Oh, gosh. Uh, I certainly think so. Um, it's, a, well, it's a pleasure to be on a show where the host uses the word neoclassical. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, neoclassical can, the neoclassical approach will explain equilibrium within a steady or fixed system looking at industries and how they grow and change tells you how you get to equilibrium, right? It tells you how the rules within the industries change themselves. And so much of what we're seeing is the transformation of how industries do business around technology, immigration, and kind of regulatory opportunity, if you will, (laughs) that you're never, you know, a, a supply and demand analysis has to kind of freeze freeze an industry's evolution at a particular place in time and pretend that that is stable and ongoing. And I just think it's hard to see that way. That if you look around, what you're you need other kinds of analyses, and that the neoclassical approach essentially asks the wrong question. 
With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Zines, magazines, books, art, crafts, readings, performances, lectures. Do you like these things? Yeah. Do you like when these things are made by indie artists in your community? Yeah. Then come on down to Canzine West, the greatest festival of zine and independent culture. Brought to you by Broken Pencil Magazine on Saturday, November 2nd from 1 to 7 p.m. at the Ukrainian Hall at 805 Pender Street East. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, here Tuesdays uh, live, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. on CITR. And uh, the program is syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF in Burnaby. And uh, we're broadcast again, syndicated on CJSF um, on Fridays from 10 to 11. And uh, you've been hearing um, a conversation um, with Mark Dussard, and he is assistant um, professor of um, planning at uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and um, he was discussing his recent book, uh, and that's called Degraded Work, The Struggle at the Bottom of the Labor Market, and uh, really a fascinating discussion about the transformation in a place like um, Chicago, but as as you uh, will have heard, um, applies more broadly in a variety of different contexts. And his research was intended to ask the question about um, why is work becoming degraded and, and how is it becoming degraded and w- focusing on what, uh, what he calls as the place-bound industries, those that serve local markets and are not, um, and are not competing on, a, on an international basis in the way that manufacturing or industries that are selling um, goods um, on, a, on a global market are. So he was looking at residential construction and also um, mid-sized grocers um, in uh, neighborhoods in Chicago and finding that these employers within these industries, um, there are active processes of of ways, um, active processes of degradation. So active ways and and mechanisms through which um, employment, the employment relationship um, and labor conditions are degraded in terms of low pay and working faster um, and just generally quality of work um, that is becoming more precarious. So again, that book is Degraded Work, The Struggle at the Bottom of the Labor Market. And if you missed any portion of that, you can check that out at thecityfm.org. And uh, also find a link off of the CITR and CJSF website, citr.ca and cjsf.ca as well. We're just about out of time, um, but I did also want to mention that if you are interested in issues of urban and regional economies, check out a past um, mini-series that uh, we uh, aired here on the city. It was called The Working City, and that's um, something that you can find, again, at thecityfm.org. Um, just by searching uh, the working city, and it was a, a three uh, three part series looking at um, urban and regional economies and looking at this idea of the post industrial city or the global city and a lot of these tensions and, and contradictions that tend to emerge um, and what the future of um, certain economies um, 
will likely be um, in this post-industrial context and what this means. And I think Mark Dussard really gets at some of these questions um, very well in arguing that these things are not necessarily inherent or natural. Um, they are created and they are produced, and we need to find ways to actively um, to actively examine, explore, and challenge them um, and denaturalize them in a sense. This is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, and uh, it does come to the end of the hour. Um, check out the program again Tuesdays um, here on CITR and Fridays 10 a.m. to 11 on CJSF, and uh, you can catch... Um, all the past shows at thecityfm.org um, as well. And again, um, find us on Facebook and on Twitter by fa- on Facebook by searching the City Critical Urban Discussions and Twitter with the handle the City underscore FM. And uh, again, we'll be back next week with more Critical Urban Discussions. I'm Andy Longhurst. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, uh, send your comments in or suggestions, or if you have anything to say about the content or programming, uh, you can tweet those at the city underscore FM or uh, post them on the website or the Facebook page. Love to hear your feedback um, and uh, always want to look for topics and and, uh, ways to improve the programming to make it uh, interesting and and certainly relevant um, to what, what your interests are. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back next week.